Our scripture reading is Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Please be seated. Thank you. I want to thank you for your presence this evening and for the reading of the scripture tonight and for the wonderful way that you've entered into our worship service by singing these beautiful songs. We're always very grateful for your presence and your participation. Uh, thankful for the announcement that was made today. Name has been set before us, Brother Ed Litsky, as uh, an elder of the congregation in a time period whereby you can submit any kind of objection or scriptural objection you like in the matter, and I hope if that is needful that you will. Uh, the appointment of an elder or the appointment of a deacon surely shows the growth of a congregation. It shows the congregation has grown spiritually. And it shows uh, the need for others to work in this office of work and service to the Lord. And we certainly have been in need. We've looked out among us, and the name was submitted. And we submit it to you for your consideration. I hope you give it prayerful thought and full consideration. I think it's a wonderful announcement to have made, and I look forward to that two-week period of time. We have been studying one of my favorite subjects, and that's the New Testament church. You and I have talked a lot about offices of work in the church, such as elders and deacons. We've studied about it in Sunday morning Bible classes. We continue to look at these matters, and I wanted to talk a little bit about the church uh, today. I spoke about the church, as you read about it, in Matthew chapter 16, and I was looking at the one verse, verse 18, and I was using verse 18 as the outline for my lesson, I was looking at the passage, it says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I was looking at each word of that very carefully, and, and as I said uh, this morning about verse uh, 16, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I think that's one of the greatest passages of all the Bible. It's the greatest thing that we can ever say, that Jesus is the Christ, and say it with faith and confidence and commitment. And when we're baptized into Christ, we make that good confession. I'm committing my life to Christ, and I'm going to follow the will of the Christ, the Christ of God. But here also this verse 18. While on the coast of Caesarea Philippi, there they ask him, Now who do men say that I the Son of Man am? And they were saying to him, Well, some say that you're Jeremiah. Some say you're Elijah, or one of the prophets. And he said, But who do you say that I am? And then Peter makes this wonderful confession of faith in verse 16. And then he begins to talk about the church, verse 18. And in this particular statement, he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock 
And we learned that that rock, of course, is the foundation of the church. Uh, the church's foundation is a very important matter. Other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. The foundation of the church has got to be the Christ. I was just thinking hypothetically, though I never like to take a word out of the Bible or add anything to the Bible, but just as a means of teaching, as a teaching tool, take the word Peter out of there just for a second. I will tell you, you are on this rock, I will build my church. The this has to refer not to Peter, but it has to refer to the great truth expressed in verse 16. Now, with Peter in the passage, as is proper, you are Peter. Peter, you're one thing. But on this rock, I'm going to build the church, the great ledge of truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And we spent a considerable amount of time this morning discussing the foundation, which is a very important matter. We see very clearly that the church, the New Testament, teaches is not a man-made church, but it has as its foundation, its substance, its support, the great truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then we looked at the fact that Christ is the builder of the church, and he uses the word I there. He says, I will build. This person didn't build, or that person didn't build, but Jesus is the builder. And we saw in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, how he said he purchased the church with his own blood. That's what Paul said about Jesus. And that's why it's described in those ways, the church of Christ. That's the Greek way of forming a possessive. This belongs to him. Colossians 1.13, the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of God. Because it comes from Christ, it belongs to Christ. Uh, many of you will not pass away till you see the kingdom of God come with power. In Mark chapter 9, verse 1. It's the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Because it comes from God. It comes from heaven. And so the builder of the church is represented in the fact that Christ said, I will build it. You didn't build it and I didn't build it. He's the builder of the church. And I think that's an important matter to understand. But notice the point about the time factor here, which I don't think is emphasized as much as it should. And I, I spent some special time talking about the time factor. But that's important. It's a very relevant matter when it talks about when was this church built. And when Jesus made this statement, he said, I will build it. He hadn't built it yet. And then we went back to those Old Testament prophecies. Wonderful prophecy. Beautiful prophecy about the church. Isaiah chapter 2. Go back and read that. And we'll not do that tonight. But we did that this morning. On Wednesday evenings, we read that prophecy and looked at it item by item and ran some of those references down. Beautiful prophecy about the kingdom of God and the church in Daniel chapter 2. Isaiah 2, Daniel 2, and the verse, verse 44, is a great prophecy there with regard to the church. And these Old Testament prophets are saying, look off into the future. And God is going to establish His kingdom. And God's going to bring His kingdom. You see, we're studying the time factor. Then when you go to the New Testament and you see the preaching of John... John was preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that meant it hadn't quite come yet. Hadn't quite come yet. It's at hand, but it's not there yet. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. He said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus went about preaching the kingdom. Now that point right there, I think separates a lot of the preaching you hear today from the kind of preaching of Christ and the apostles in the first century. Because they were preaching the kingdom. It seems as though preachers today preach everything else but the kingdom. 
But Jesus came preaching about the kingdom. The apostles were preaching about the kingdom. And Jesus was saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, those people were waiting in anticipation for the kingdom because they knew about Isaiah chapter 2. And they knew about Daniel chapter 2. And they knew about a other host of passages that was prophesying about the coming of the kingdom. I believe the time factor is an important point. But then when you get to Acts chapter 2... They're being added to the church. The Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Acts 2 and verse 47. It's coming. It's at hand. And now people are being added into it by obeying the gospel of Christ. The time factor. And then all these beautiful passages in the the epistles written by Paul and other writers of the New Testament talking about life in the church. And Paul writes in Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 about the church being in the mind of God before the world ever began. And then he talks about chapters 4, 5, and 6 in the book of Ephesians about how to live life in the church. What is Romans chapter 12 about other than living the Christian life as a child of God in the church of the living God? Now it's a reality. And these Bible writers are telling us, now this is how you conduct yourself now that you're in the church. There's the time factor. Before, it's not here yet. Now by Acts chapter 2, they're being added to it. After Acts chapter 2, they're writing about how to live life properly in it. The time factor is an important point. Jesus said, I will build my church. I want to continue that kind of discussion tonight. I'd like to look and use this statement, this promise of Jesus as my outline. And just consider carefully and follow along with me, if you will, some of the reasoning that can be made with regard to the outline itself. One of the things that I learned about the church is that Jesus is the owner because you'll notice he said in the passage, I will build what? My church. I already talked about Jesus being the builder, but I think the point is making amply clear, is being made amply clear that this church belongs to Christ. And it doesn't belong to you and it doesn't belong to me. And I made the point just briefly in passing this morning where sometimes we say, well, at my church, we do things this way. Or at my church, they do this. What do they do at your church? And I think we all have made that kind of statement. It's naturally accommodative kind of language that we've all said at one time or another. But we need to be very clear with regard to the matter of whose church this really is. This church that we're talking about. This church belongs to Christ. And we talked about the fact that he was the builder of it and the designer and the architect of it, but it belongs to him. And naturally, when he says, it's my church, it's no one else's but his. To help me see that, I, I thought of Matthew chapter 15. Let's go to that just for a brief moment. And an interesting thing takes place in Matthew 15. You and I have studied this before, but this helps me remember the point. This church belongs to Christ. It doesn't belong to me. In this particular instance, the Pharisees and the scribes are criticizing the disciples of the Lord. I think what you may have here in Matthew 15 is that the disciples are finally weaning themselves away from the oral traditions of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They didn't want to have anything to do with Gentiles. They didn't want to have any part to do with them. And so for that reason, they came up with all kinds of purification 
policies and principles that they expected everyone to follow so as to cleanse themselves from being in contact from any type of Gentile or uncleanness. But now the disciples weren't following that and weren't following along. And they were criticizing the disciples of the Lord for that failure. Now these were oral traditions that they had developed and in time these oral traditions would be written down and in future generations it would be called the Mishnah. And uh, Jewish people today know very well, the scholars of the Jewish religion know very well what the Mishnah is. It is that collection of oral traditions which Jews developed and, and, and got together and wrote them down. It's quite a volume to try to read through. And I've read through portions of it here and portions of it there. And I'm certainly not an expert in those particular matters. But the Pharisees were trying to insist that you disciples of Jesus need to keep the oral traditions. And really I think the barb is aimed at Jesus more than anything else. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? The old tradition? You ought to keep these traditions, you see. And he said, For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? You see, that's what's happening when you make laws and rules for people that are not from God. When you start making rules and laws for people to follow and obey that you don't find in the Scripture, then you're guilty of sin. And that's the point that he's making in verse 3. And he talks about an illustration of that, about devoting things to uh, Corbin. In other words, instead of helping out mom and dad, you devote your wealth to Corbin and say, I'm sorry, I can't help you, mom. I can't help you, dad, in your old age because all my assets are devoted to God and I can't use them for that purpose. And he said, you're violating the word of God when you do that. And then he said, now Isaiah had you in his crosshairs. You hypocrites, verse 7, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now there's a point right there that I'd like to emphasize. I'm trying to work my way down into verse 13. Please be patient with me, I promise to get there. But when you create false doctrine and error and man-made doctrine, it's going to render null and void your worship to God. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You can't just create your own doctrines here and still be pleasing in the sight of God. Now, let's get on down to this. They were concerned about the matter. And uh, Jesus says in verse 13, he answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. And that's what made me think of this point about the church. In fact, I looked up that word plant, and that goes back to the idea of a wild weed. If you plant a wild weed like that, it's not going to produce anything. It's going to be rooted up. God is not going to be pleased with that. You can go out here and you can plant this congregation or that congregation or that kind of religious body or that kind of religious body. And when you set that up in opposition to and in competition with the church that belongs to Christ, it is like a wild weed. And God is not pleased with it. He answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. 
It's going nowhere. It's not going to accomplish anything. Why? Because it's not from the owner of the church. He's the owner of it. Now, the New Testament is filled with this kind of point, and I made reference to Ephesians 1 already, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, about the church being the body of Christ, and Ephesians chapter 5 and 22, the church being the bride of Christ. And those are wonderful lessons and wonderful Bible passages to consider. But I'd like to get to the application, because I know you're familiar with those great verses of Scripture about how important the church of the Lord is. If I were to be tinkering around with the nature of the church, I'd be very concerned. Because every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted will be rooted up. Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. And whenever you start trying to change the nature of the church, that's what I say in my own Tennessee way, tinkering around with it. If you're going to try to change it and tinker around with it and modify it, the nature of it, I'd be very concerned about that. Now, I'm not talking about whether you have uh, different colored light bulbs or whether you have a beige room or whether it's a white room or that kind of thing. I'm talking about the church, the people of God. And when you start manipulating and changing the nature of the church and trying to turn it into something else, change its identity, it doesn't belong to you to change. It's not mine to tinker around with. It belongs to someone else. And the biblical view about Jesus being the owner is a very important point, especially in our day and time. I don't have the right to change someone else's church, the church that belongs to Christ. I'm not supposed to change his church. I don't have the authority. I don't have the authority to change the worship of the church. The worship of the New Testament church is plainly set before us in the pages of the Scripture. And it would take us just a few moments to go through the New Testament and to describe very clearly how the New Testament church worshiped. I don't have any authority to go changing that. The terms of entrance to the New Testament church. Why it take us just a few minutes to discuss, and we do regularly, about how to become a member of the church and how they did that on the day of Pentecost and how subsequent people who heard the Word of God believed with all their heart and repented of sin and confessed their faith in Christ and were baptized. And the Lord added them to His church, Acts chapter 2 and verse 47. It'd take us a few minutes to study through that matter, and we have. But oh, I... I'd fear for my soul if I started trying to manipulate that, the terms of entrance with regard to the church. I'm going to try to change that. It's not mine to change. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there's a passage that takes place there. I'd like to spend some time with chapter 12. I don't know if I'll be able to do it all tonight like I have in mind, but there's a passage there in chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, that, that really ought to um, be present or, or referenced at this point. Now, 
in this passage of 1 Corinthians 12, and beginning at about verse 12, he's talking about the one body there, which I'll make reference to. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. And then he works his way on down here. He says, now, you know, a hand can't say to the foot, I'm more important than you are. Or an eye can't say to the ear, I'm an eye and you're just an ear. I'm more important than you are. And that's his point. The church works together in harmony and unity, which is a wonderful point. But he makes this statement here in verse 18, and that's what made me think of this. 1 Corinthians 12, 18. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. Now, the word arranged there means to set. He put it in place. You know, in modern theology, a lot of the discussion is about over time these things evolved. Over time, these matters uh, came into being. And if you studied modern theology, you're going to read a lot about the writers that have really made their mark in, uh, in modern theological circles, and basically their approach is, which I think is uh, their, the influence of Darwinian evolution on theology, and that is they really didn't have a clear-set idea about what the church is, and so it evolved into this over time. It evolved into that over time, and long periods of time the church became what it became many, many years after that, and they have the church developing and changing through the years. But that's not what he said here. God said it. God arranged it. But as it is, God arranged. God put it in place. Set it. Fixed it. This is what God wants with regard to his church. You know why? Because Christ is the owner of it. This is how he set it in order. He set the organization of the church, the worship of the church, the terms of entrance to the church. Now, who would I be? And I'm just being as honest with you as I know how and and as plain as I can speak. What kind of person would I be for me to come along and buy the property across from this property there and say, I'm going to set up a church, and I'm going to decide what the terms of entrance are, and I'm going to decide who will be members and what the purpose of the church is, and I'll decide what the organization of the church is supposed to be like because this is the way I want it to be like. What kind of person would I be? What kind of presumptuous attitude would that be? I cannot set up a church in competition with the true church of God and still be pleasing in the sight of God because Jesus is the owner of the church. Therefore, it is not my church. It's not the Christian's church. It's not the community's church. It's the church that belongs to Christ. He set up the church. God set that up just exactly the way He wanted it And if I were to come along and try to tinker with that and manipulate that plan, that divine organization and pattern and purpose of the New Testament church, I'd fear for my soul. He's the owner. It is his church. Now, if you go back to our study and you'll think, well, Jim, haven't you already... Made that point? No, I don't think so. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock 
I will build my, he's the owner, what? My church. How many churches did he establish? How many churches did he build? He built his church. And he didn't use a plurality of churches there. He said, I'm going to build my church. And I think the emphasis of the passage at that point in time is, this is a church, the church. It's the church which God had in mind in the long ago. Now here I think it would be helpful for us to go to the book of Ephesians and study this point very clearly because that is what he has in mind. And then I want to go back to my passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So here let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. And one wonders, you know, just uh, where to begin in this point. But he does talk about the counsel of God and the will of God and the Word of God in this matter of Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, I think I'll begin in about verse 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us, who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. And put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, if we took our time and went through this great book of Ephesians, we would see that this was in the mind of God to establish this great church, my church, not my churches, you see. It is my church, the church that Jesus established. And he says, God decided to do this in the long ago. It was part of his divine will. Notice in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in about verse 4, you have another passage of Scripture that should be within our thinking. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father, all is above all and through all and in you all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. There is one body. The reason I think of Ephesians 4 and 4 is because he tells me that that one body is the church. Now let's quickly go back to our 1 Corinthians chapter 12 again. It'll have more meaning for us now when he talks about his church, the singular body of people which have been established for his divine purpose. Verse 12, for just as the body is one. And I've learned what the body is. I've learned that the church is the body, Ephesians chapter 1. And there's only one of that, Ephesians 4 and verse 4. And has many members. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. There is one body, you see. And he's using the word church there, or body, to help us understand the wonderful relationship that exists between us and the church. It's a metaphor. It's a body. It's people united together, working in harmony for the head, which is Christ. The church belongs to Christ. And there is that one church, 
that you read about in the pages of the Bible. Uh, this is hard for us to get a grasp on because of our modern-day thinking. It's something that we're not told. Our culture wants us to say, it's the church of your choice. Back home in Tennessee, Mercersburg, Tennessee, every Saturday they had a big thing in the paper, and all the churches got together, and they put an ad in the Saturday paper, and it said, attend the church of your choice in big, bold letters and all these different congregations, that kind of thing. That really is not a biblical concept. Now, I know what they were trying to do was advertise and give people space in the paper. I understand all about that. But I'm speaking biblically here. It's not the church of your choice. It's the church of God's choice. And you must be a member of that church in order to be pleasing in the sight of God. There's another point, though, and I do not try to uh, convey the idea that I've covered everything that needs to be covered here by any means. But there's something here I've thought quite a bit about. Hades shall not prevail against the church. Now, I think there's some misunderstanding about this point, so let me speak to it just briefly. And it's in the part of my outline that I'm studying with you tonight, Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. He says, and I, he's uh, uh, the foundation, tell you, Peter, you are Peter, and upon this rock, the foundation, I, as the builder, will, the future factor, you see, time factor, build my church. It belongs to him, and it is his singular body of people, church. And here's the phrase that's often misunderstood. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I've often heard gospel preachers say, well, this means that no matter how dark the dark ages get, there's always going to be a faithful church of Christ. And it doesn't matter how badly things seem to go, there's always going to be a church uh, to go to. But I don't know that that really is what he had in mind. And sometimes I've heard it put this way, you know, there's always been a faithful line of churches worshiping faithfully all the way back to Acts chapter 2. We may not know where they were, or we may not know when they were, but there's always been a faithful church from Acts chapter 2 all the way through the present time. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not. God would know, but I wouldn't know. I don't think that's what he's saying here. Uh, the idea of there being a line of faithful churches all the way to the present moment from Acts 2 to the present really is immaterial. It's immaterial because let's say there was no faithful congregation anywhere to worship. A person could take the New Testament and restore the New Testament church. And he could open up the New Testament, no matter how bad things got or how bad the world was, he could read in there about the one church of the New Testament, about Christ being the builder and the foundation of that church, and how he wants everyone to be a part of it. And, and he could say, hey, let's do things the Bible way, and let's restore the New Testament church. So it really is immaterial in my thinking as to try to find a church that goes all the way from Acts chapter 2 to the present day. I don't think it's necessary. If it happened that way, fine. Only God would know. But I think the important issue is we could restore it. If it's not there, we could be restored. And we could take this Bible, the seed of the kingdom, and we could restore the New Testament church. But I don't think that's the point here. What Jesus is saying is, even death itself is not going to stop the establishment of this church. Now, things are going to be bad with regard to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, but even death is not going to destroy the church. 
Let's see if that holds true by reading into the Scripture here what the Word of God says in this chapter. He says by verse 19, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And he's talking about Peter there in the terms of entrance, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. The tense of the verbs there are very important. It shall have been bound in heaven. <clears throat> what you say will have already been bound in heaven. What you do on earth shall have already been bound on earth. God has authorized it. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ, and the time wasn't quite right yet but it would be coming in the near future. Now the point in verse 21. I'm in Matthew chapter 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now that's what he's talking about. Even death itself shall not prevent the establishment of the church. And the disciples are continuing to learn this important matter and grow and mature in faith. And he's trying to tell them now, here is how it's going to go. And he begins to explain to them how he's going to suffer. He's going to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to suffer in Jerusalem. He's going to die on the cross in Jerusalem. And you know what Peter said? No, no, no Lord, it's not going to be that way. See, they really don't understand yet the plan of God. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, said, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. He really doesn't understand yet. And Jesus is trying to help them understand the plan of God and the will of God. That it was in the mind of God that man would need a Savior. And this Savior would have to die for the sins of the world. And so in turn, he's trying to explain to them how this is going to happen. This is not the only time that he does that. When Jesus says, Hades shall not prevail against it, means death itself will not thwart God's purpose here. God's going to establish His church. And I think that we can read from the pages of the Scripture evidence and material that will help us draw that conclusion even more firmly. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. In the second chapter of the book of Acts, I think the very point is being made for us as Peter now begins to introduce to us who Jesus is. Verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Now that 22 is a powerful verse. Notice what he says in verse 22. He introduces Jesus to them. These men are not drunken with new wine as you supposed. And he says, now this is what Joel prophesied in Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 32. He says, but now this Jesus of Nazareth, uh, the one who was attested to you by God, God confirmed him, God uh, had confidence in him, God was working through him. How would we say that or why would we say that? With mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. You can know that this one is the Christ. He's the one that God has sent for the salvation of the world. <clears throat> As you yourselves know, you're witnesses to the signs and the wonders that took place by the miraculous power of Christ. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now that's Peter's way of saying it. I've always keep saying it was in the mind of God before the world ever began. That's what he means there. And that's what that phrase means. It was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Why the Jews, by using the Romans and manipulating the situation as they did, brought about his death. God raised him up, verse 24, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David said concerning him, a quotation is not surprising. Many quotations come from the Psalms. Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Now verse 26, Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul in Hades. You see, the Hadean world is not going to hold him. The Hadean world is life's other side. For the wicked, Luke chapter 16, the Hadean world is a world of torment. For the righteous, it is a world of bliss and paradise. But God was not going to leave His Son in the Hadean world. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. His flesh would not decompose. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter is saying, Hades will not prevail against it. Peter is saying, God raised him up, and he told us, that death was not going to prevent the establishment of this church that Jesus talks about. So today I learned about the foundation. And I learned about the builder and I learned about the time factor. I just can't emphasize those points enough. But I've also learned about the owner. It is my church, Jesus said. It doesn't belong to the community. He said it is his church. He's the owner of it, the singular body that belongs to Christ. And Hades will not prevail against it. Even death will not prevent the establishment of this church you and I are studying tonight. I guess... All of these important points, as I have tried to take this one verse and break it down and analyze it into understanding what it is saying about the church, could be summarized in one word. Jesus is the authority. He's the authority for the church. It's not me. It's not the elders. The church has one that leads the church spiritually, Jesus Christ. The church has elders that lead it in matters of expediency. Jesus delegated that authority. But Christ is the authority of His church. And that's why we work hard at trying to understand what has Jesus said about this? What have inspired writers taught us about this? Is there word from the Lord on this particular matter. And with every issue, with every decision, we stop and ask, what does the Bible say about this in the church? This is the church I'm a part of. This is a church I believe in. This is the church that God has given us. And this is the people 
who are going to heaven, who have been submissive and obedient to the will of God. Now, if you're not a part of the church, I urge you to become one now. I urge you to repent of your sins and confess your faith in Christ, be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, just as you and I have been reading from the pages of the Bible. We've been looking today at the church of the New Testament, the church you want to be a part of. And I encourage you and plead with you to become a member of it. If you've been unfaithful to the matter, repent of that now and become a faithful member of the church of the New Testament. Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.